Well, hey, it's good to gather together with you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, we're grateful to be together, uh, just to be able to sing songs together, to open up God's Word now. And so if you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, somebody will bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along out of the scriptures this morning as we've been kind of saying throughout this whole series. Uh, we just want to make sure that you can read God's Word with us as we go through pretty significant chunks of scripture in the Old Testament. So just keep your hand up uh, until somebody finds you and you can take that home with you. If you don't actually have a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. You know, when I was growing up, one of my favorite TV shows to watch when I was younger was Batman. And I'm not talking like new Batman. I'm talking like the classic 1960s Adam West Batman. The episodes were short, but they always came in two parts. Part one always left Batman and Robin in some kind of peril or predicament. And the episode would come to an end with a narrator saying something along the lines of, could this mean curtains? Will the identities of our dynamic duo be revealed to the whole world? Is this the end of their career as crime fighters? Answers tomorrow night. Same bat time, same bat channel. In the 60s, you had to wait till the next day to watch the show. But when I was growing up, they would just show them back to back. I didn't have to wait very long to see what was going to happen to Batman and Robin. Well, last week we finished up the book of Genesis And we left off with Joseph and all of his brothers living in Egypt. And Genesis ends with these words. At the end of chapter 50 of Genesis, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph is dead. God's people are in Egypt, not the promised land. God had promised his people that they would have this land, that they would live in this place, that they would multiply and become a a blessing to all nations. But here they find themselves in Egypt. What's going to happen to them? Will they be there forever? Will God bring them out? Well, today we start episode two on the same bat time and same bat channel, jumping into the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus seeks to continue to tell the story where Genesis left off. It continues to relate to us who God is, what he's doing in the midst of his people and his world. And it seeks to answer those questions. I'm excited to continue our series in the Torah by studying Exodus because as we go through Exodus, we'll continue to see the amazing grace of God and the faithfulness he has to his plans and to his people. The book of Exodus is important for you today. It's not just some book that tells history. It has relevance for your life today. It's important for you today. So as we open up God's word this morning, I hope and pray that God will continue, as he always does, through his word to reveal himself to us. And that by doing that, we will be compelled to be who God has called us to be. So before we open up to Exodus chapter 1, let's just pray and ask God to do that. Father, we're grateful that you've given us your word and that the story doesn't just end in Genesis chapter 50, but continues to go on to tell of your grace, to tell of you being faithful to your plans and your people. And so, Lord, as we open up to Exodus chapter 1 this morning and as we walk through this book over the next several weeks, Father, I pray that you would use your word the stories that we read and not just see them as just fun stories to tell, but see them as displays of your power, displays of your grace, displays of your 
plan to bring redemption to your people, us included. And so we pray that your word would bring about just a stirred affection for you this morning, that our eyes would be set on you. And no matter what's going on in our life right now, Lord, that in this moment, that this would be a, a, a special moment for your spirit to do a work in our lives, that we wouldn't be distracted by other things that might be going on right now, but we would submit those things to you and be attentive to your spirit today. And Lord, we pray that you would bring about transformation and change and encouragement in our time in your word this morning. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to be going through the first three chapters of Exodus this morning. But to begin, just want to read the first eight verses of Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. See, the book of Exodus does pick up right where Genesis left off, but things don't be, they don't look to be getting better for God's people. They look to be getting worse. Verse 8 says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This, this new king is not favorable as the old king was to God's people, to Joseph and his family. And as God's people increase, this new king's animosity for this people also increases. He's fearful of them. He puts taskmasters over them to make them do work as foreigners in his land. But even in the midst of this impression, they continue to increase. They continue to multiply. And as the people of God continue to eat, increase, the Egyptian people become more fearful and sought to oppress them even more. Verse 13 says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Now, this doesn't sound like the promise of prosperity that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what's going on here? Well, it continues to get worse. Pharaoh wants to stop the growing population of the Hebrews, which the scripture refers to. This is a name given to the people of God, descendants of Abraham. And so he charges the Hebrew midwives to kill all males born to Hebrew women. But these midwives refuse to do this. Because they fear God more than they fear an earthly king and his desires. And so they don't do what he asked them to do. And so Pharaoh takes things into his own hands and commands that all males born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile River and killed. Pharaoh commands his people to commit infanticide. This is heinous, awful, evil oppression. In Exodus chapter 1, the main focus of Exodus chapter 1 is to highlight the plight of God's people. Seeing them in this place enslaved to this kingdom that they is not their home, not in the place that God has called them to be. And now their children are being forcefully killed. Exodus chapter 2 begins by zooming in and focusing in on a particular Hebrew family. In the first 10 verses, we learn that there's a husband and a wife who become pregnant, and she is pregnant with a baby boy. 
And so she decides when this boy is born to keep him hidden for three months because of the edict of Pharaoh. Again, they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. So they hide their son. But eventually he gets too big to hide. And so the mother in desperation puts him in a waterproof basket and hides him in the bulrushes of the Nile River. Presumably to be found and hoping, hoping that someone will find him and have compassion on this little boy. But not just anyone finds this baby. The daughter of Pharaoh finds this baby. This would certainly be death for him. The daughter of the man who says that all of these children should be killed is the one that finds this little boy. But in God's providence, she does have compassion on this child. She does not cast him into the river to die, but instead saves him out of the river. He's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and she gives him the name Moses. The author jumps ahead a bit. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. See, Moses understands that he is not an Egyptian. He understands that he is a Hebrew, that he's part of God's people, that he comes from the line of Abraham. And so he has this this problem, this tension developing in his life where he is experiencing the riches of Egypt, yet looks out on his people and sees them being oppressed. And so he seeks to do something about it. And in the midst of this, as he goes out to interact with his people, laying aside his Writes as a prince of Egypt, he goes out to seek to, to see the oppression and alleviate the oppression of his people. He sees a display of this oppression. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. But Moses decides to do something rash. He takes things into his own hands. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, He looked this way, and that seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses kills this man. Moses takes justice into his own hands, seeking to bring about his own resolution. And he thinks he's done this in secret. He he thinks he's gotten away with this, but he gets found out by his own people. And so he runs. He runs. He runs far, far away. He runs from who he is. He runs from what he's done. And he runs into the desert land. And there he marries a Midianite woman named Zipporah. He has children. He settles into a new life as a shepherd far away from anything that he knows. And he's content to be here. He's content to make new life here in the desert, away from everything he's known. As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of Simba and the Lion King. Right? I mean, Simba's accused of killing his father. So he runs away to make a new life. I mean, Hakuna Matata, right? Just live out here and everything will be okay. And that seems to be what Moses is doing. He says, I'm just going to leave this all behind. But he didn't just get accused of killing someone. He actually did kill someone. Once a prince of Egypt with everything. Now he's a shepherd in the desert with absolutely nothing. He doesn't even have his own sheep. He's shepherding someone else's sheep. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Exodus have set up this situation for us. We have both a picture of the plight of Israel and also the plight of Moses. Both are bad situations. Both are dark and difficult situations. But chapter 2 ends with a word of hope. Verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew the people of God cry out for rescue to God. They're in a place of desperation. They don't know what else to do and they cry out to God and God hears them. God is faithful to his covenant. God hears, he sees, and he knows the reality of their oppression. So God was not ignoring them all this time, but waiting in his providence, in his plan, until the right time came to enact his preordained plan of deliverance. And now this time had come. Forty years have passed since Moses fled to Midian. Forty years have passed and Moses' time has turned him into a meek and humble shepherd instead of a privileged prince. And unbeknownst to Moses, the plight of Israel and his plight are about to come together. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why? The bush is not burned. It's a pretty ordinary day for Moses, shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. But this particular day, he goes out a little bit further than he normally goes, to a more remote and distant area. It says that he goes to Horeb, which will later be called Mount Sinai. And the author tells us this is God's mountain. And he goes out to this place in an ordinary day. But as he's going about his ordinary business, he's noticed something out of the ordinary. A bush is burning, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And I love that Moses talks to himself here, right? I mean, he's out in the middle of nowhere and it says, well, Moses said, I mean, maybe he's talking to the sheep. I guess after you're with them for a while, you get a little bit delirious. Moses says to someone himself or the sheep, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. I mean, obviously you'd want to go to check this out. Obviously he sees a bush on fire. It's not being consumed. I mean, you and I slow down on the road when we see flashing lights because we have to see what's going on. If we saw a bush being burned but not being consumed, we would be drawn to it. And on this ordinary day, something extraordinary happens and it changes Moses' life forever. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The scriptures say this is an angel of the Lord that has come, but what we see in this is not just some angel of the Lord, not just some messenger of God. It's God himself speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. But notice that God calls Moses to himself, but then God stops Moses from coming. He stops him from coming and he says, Moses, you need to take off your shoes because where you are right now is a holy place. It's holy ground. But the ground isn't holy in and of itself. It's not some particular holy place. It is holy because God's presence is there. 
God establishes the holiness of this moment. He establishes the holiness that his presence brings. And he does all of this before he actually identifies himself to Moses. Moses still doesn't know what's going on. He says, I am the God of your father, Moses. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And as we saw throughout the book of Genesis, when God refers to himself in this way, when he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he calls himself the God of grace. And in this holy moment, God's grace is raining down on Moses. Moses, the murderer. Moses, the coward. Moses, the lost one is being called by God to be redeemed by God. See, we don't know much about Moses' faith or belief in God at this point. He grew up in an Egyptian household where there would have been many gods around, many worship, I mean, temples worshiping these false gods. He knew he also came from Abraham's people and would have known about his lineage there and the God that they worship. But we don't know if he actually has trusted in God, if he actually believes in the one true God. So either he's run away from him or he's never truly known him. But God knows Moses and God comes to Moses to rescue him. God doesn't wait for Moses to find him. God seeks out Moses. This is another picture of God's sovereign redeeming grace that we saw all throughout the book of Genesis. Moses is not a worthy person to be called by God. This is a picture of his grace. And Moses has been blown away by God's presence, so so he hides himself in reverence to God. And now God gives good news to Moses. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. There's a few things that we should take note of here that God says to Moses. He says, Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people, Moses. You saw the affliction of your people, but these are my people, and I've seen their affliction. Moses, I have heard their cry. You thought you were the only one who heard their cry, but I have heard their cry. Moses, I know their sufferings. It's not just you that sees their sufferings. I know their sufferings. Then Moses, I have come down to deliver them. You left your place to seek to give them deliverance, but it's I who have seen this, and I have come down to deliver them. God is not distant God is not disconnected. God is not uncaring and unloving. And though God is transcendent, though God is high and lifted up, though he is unapproachable in his majesty and his power, he has come down. God in his grace, in his mercy, his compassion and love, he condescends and in his eminence, he comes down to rescue his people. Moses longed for this. I mean, he went out to try and alleviate the sufferings of his people. He had seen their plight and he had gone out. So this is amazing news to him. God is going to rescue them now. God is going to deliver them. God is going to be faithful to his covenant promises of making them a great nation who would live in a land of their own and be a blessing to all nations. God is going to do this work. 
Moses would be thrilled to hear this news from the living God. But then God says something to Moses that throws him for a loop. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is going to use Moses to do this work of redemption. See, God did not just call Moses to save him. God called Moses to send him. And Moses is freaking out here. He's freaking out here. He, he already tried to intervene to help his people once, and he wound up committing murder and running away for 40 years. And now God is asking him to go back, to go back to do this work of deliverance. And so Moses, as he's freaking out, asks God two questions. Verse 11, it says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is not a question that's coming from a place of humility. This is a, play, this is a question that's coming from a place of fear, of reluctance. God, I, I, I shouldn't do this. God, God, I don't want to do this. Why can't you do it? You're God, not me. Why don't you go free them? I left Egypt on bad terms. I can't go back now. How will that even work? But that's kind of the point, isn't it? God graciously responds to Moses' reluctance. Verse 12, God says, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Man, I love this. Notice how God answers this first question. It has absolutely nothing to do with Moses and everything to do with God. It isn't about Moses' abilities, but about God's presence, his power, his purposes, his plans. Moses says, I can't do this, God. And God says, you're right. I'm doing it. See, God's response to Moses' fear is not to explain it away. God doesn't seek to give a pep talk to Moses. Say, no, Moses, I believe in you. You can do it. You can do it. No, God's response to, to Moses is to replace his debilitating fear with a more powerful belief. To trust in the power and presence of God. The greatest encouragement that God could ever give to Moses is to give him himself. His presence and power alone will be what enables Moses to carry out the calling God has given to him. And notice God says, I will be with you and here's your sign that this is going to happen is once you have actually done what I've called you to do, you will come back to the same mountain and your people, all of them will worship me here. He doesn't give him something ahead of time. He just says, trust me and go. Moses asks this first question, who am I, God? And God answers it in a way that Moses wasn't looking for him to answer. And so now Moses asks him a second question, maybe even a more bold question, who are you? And God answers in a similar fashion. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, notice he says, if I come, he's still not convinced that he's actually going to go do this. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? See, again, Moses is missing the point here. He's still focusing on his own inadequacy instead of God's sufficiency in this moment. Moses is nervous that no one will take him seriously. He's not even sure who to say has sent him. See, the Egyptians had many gods and all of them had names. So may, maybe Moses in this moment is just looking for a name, just for a proper name, just something to tell the people. 
But God gives him a whole lot more than that. Verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God says to Moses, Moses, I am who I am. I am the only true God. I am the God. There is no other. I am the God who will be with you. I am the God of these people. You can tell them that I am sent me to you. This is where the name Yahweh comes from. It's a derivative of the verb to be in Hebrew. We say I am or you are or he or she is. It's this verb of, of action here, of, of placement with this person. And so God saying I am, we learn from this that there's a mystery. God saying I am God. God is God. I am eternal and unchanging. I am self-existent and self-sufficient. God saying, I am the one who made all things, who sustains all things, who is over all things. I am God. I define deity. I define godness. Tell the people, this is who sent me to you. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of grace. And this is God's name forever because God is forever. Moses asks this bold question and God responds in a bold way. And in the heels of this great declaration about his greatness, God says again to Moses, go. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Go, Moses, go. Tell the people that I have come to bring redemption and deliverance. Go, Moses. Tell them that I have come to set them free from slavery. Go, Moses. Tell them that I am faithful and true and I will do what I always promised to do. God tells Moses that the elders of Israel will listen to him, but Pharaoh will not listen to him. But God promises. Though Pharaoh will not listen to your request, he will not acquiesce to it. Because he won't do that, what I will do, Moses, is I will stretch out my hand in power, and then he will let you go. Trust me, Moses, and go. See, the book of Exodus is about God's saving grace. God is the rescuer. God is the redeemer of his people. This is the story throughout this entire book, and all of this in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are setting up all that God will do. But Exodus chapter 3 is not a story about Moses' qualifications to be this person. Moses doesn't have any qualifications. In fact, if we go on into chapter 4, Moses continues to try and rebuff God's call for him to go. And he says, I can't even speak. I'm not, I'm not an eloquent person. How can I go do this? See, this is not a story about Moses' qualifications, but instead it is a story about the God who saves and the God who uses imperfect people to bring the message of redemption. See, it's God who called Moses. 
It's God who saved Moses. It's God who sent Moses. And it's God who promised to be with Moses. Moses became a shepherd. And in God's providence, he became a shepherd to be able to shepherd God's people. God even redeems the very details of Moses' life for his purposes. God redeems Moses for Moses to redeem his people. In Acts chapter 7, verse 35, it says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Exodus chapter 3 is a picture of God's compassionate calling and redeeming grace. Moses is called out of darkness and called to go to a people in darkness that they might be set free. Moses is redeemed in order to redeem. See, Moses is a redeemer, but he's a reluctant redeemer. Moses is a redeemer, but he is not the redeemer. Because of sin, all of the world is enslaved to sin and death. It is in darkness. But God has said since the beginning that he would bring restoration through a redeemer. Some 1,400 years later after Moses and some 2,000 years ago, another prince left his throne and his privilege to go and be with his brothers as one of them and to shepherd God's people. Jesus came to redeem God's people out of their ultimate slavery, slavery to sin and to death. And in the gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself. He, he lets us know who he truly is. In the gospel of John, he says this. Listen to how he phrases this. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. In John chapter 8, he says, I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, he's having an argument with the Pharisees about who he is. And Jesus is here and it says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. They pick up stones to stone him. John chapter 18, in one of the most glorious displays of his identity, Jesus is standing in the garden of Gethsemane as the crowds and mobs come to arrest him. And it says in John chapter 18, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And when Jesus said to them, I am, boom, they drew back and fell on the ground. Jesus just speaks the words, I am, and the crowd falls down. See, Jesus is not simply identifying with the God of the burning bush. He is the God of the burning bush. When Jesus says, I am, he is identifying. He is saying, I am that God. I am who I am, and I have come to rescue and redeem people, my people, who are enslaved to sin and death. See, Jesus comes down. Jesus comes to rescue and he does this by bearing the weight of the wrath of God on his back for the sin of the world. 
the perfect God-man, the perfect Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, died on the cross to free us from our enslavement to sin. And he rose again to free us from death and give us life forever. God said to Moses, I am has set you free to set my people free. And Jesus says to you and to me now, I am, and I have come to set you free to set my people free. See, the same I am calls you and me, redeems you and me, and sends you and me. He sends us even now to go out into this city, to go out all around the world to say, I am sent me to you. See, Sojourn, like Moses, if we are now in Christ, we also have been redeemed to redeem. The Redeemer is always God. I don't want you to get caught up on those words and think, wait a minute, I don't actually do the work of redemption. You're right, you don't. God does. The I am does the work of redemption. No one besides the eternal, perfect, holy, magnificent God can do this work of redemption. But God, in his infinite wisdom, redeems his people to be agents of redemption, ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of grace. This is a mind-blowing reality. It should blow our minds that God accomplishes his saving work through ordinary people. Ordinary people like Moses. Ordinary people like you. Ordinary people like me. As one pastor and commentator says, he says, here in this story, we encounter one of the paradoxes of God's sovereign grace. God uses human beings, sinful human beings, to carry out his saving purpose. God does his work through the work of his people, accomplishing his will through the willing obedience of his faithful servants. Whenever God calls someone, he calls that person personally and individually to believe in him. But here we see that God calls Moses not just to save him, not just to rescue him, but calls him to do a work. The specific task that God called him to do to accomplish his glory. And the same is true for every follower of Christ. But maybe you sit here this morning and what you think about is the fact that you have sinned greatly and God can never use you. But as one of my favorite artists, Propaganda, said, there is no rewind, just redeem. See, God takes Moses' sinful deeds in Egypt and he redeems them for good in order to redeem others. He doesn't rewind. He doesn't go back and change what happened, but he moves forward. You and I are helpless to change our past. Just like Moses Moses, who killed a man. Moses, who ran away for 40 years. You and I are helpless to change our past. But God is great and gracious and through Christ redeems it for his glory. No rewind in your life. Just redeem. That God might use whatever has happened in your life now as a story of grace and redemption to lead other people out of darkness and into light. See, that's the amazing thing. The enemy seeks to put you down because of your sin, to shame you because of your sin. And God says, no, that's not how it works. There's no rewind, just redeem. I'm going to redeem you out of that and use that thing now to call other people out of darkness and into light. Listen, nothing in your past stops you from being used by God right now. Nothing in your past stops you from being used by God. The Apostle Paul agrees with this. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul says this. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Do you hear those words? The Apostle Paul says, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because of this glorious truth, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was a murderer like Moses. Paul hated Christ. He was an angry and bitter man. He'd been putting his hope in what he knew instead of truly knowing and following God. But God saved him and God sent him. No rewind, just redeem. Look, sin is serious. It is deadly and damning. And because of it, we all deserve to spend all eternity in conscious punishment in hell. But God's redeeming grace is magnificently transforming in our lives. It's magnificently transforming. Listen to Paul's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Or you do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Because of Christ, the I am, the story of your sin in your life has now become a story of God's redeeming grace. No rewind, just redeem. This is crazy. That God takes broken people and brings healing to their life through his grace. That God takes the broken of this world, redeems their life, and then commissions you to go to the broken and proclaim the freedom of Christ over them that Christ has come to redeem. Look, I don't know what's gone on in your life, what's gone on in your past, what sin you have struggled with that you maybe have never even shared with anyone before. Maybe it's sexual sin, adultery, or pornography prostitution, homosexuality, fornication. Maybe you've had an abortion or been complicit to it. Maybe you have been a person who is a rageful person, an angry person. Maybe you've been a murderer or a liar. Maybe you've been self-righteous and put your hope in religion and following rules. Maybe you've been greedy and seeking after money and treasure. Maybe that's been the story of your life. There's no rewind, just redeem. Redeemed to redeem. If that is part of your past now, it's not something that you have to bury, but now it can be a story of grace in your life. That God would use the brokenness of your life that by Christ's death on the cross, resurrection from the grave has been transformed in you, and now you can use that to speak life into other people who may be going through the same thing. Look, your sin should no longer bring shame but should be seen as a story of grace. Any shame that you experience in your life because of something that's occurred in the past is a a lie from the enemy. It's a lie from the pit of hell that you can't share that with people, that you can't talk about that because that is not who you are anymore. Christ has transformed you. The old is gone. The new has come. You once were dead and now have been made alive in Christ. No rewind, just 
redeem. But maybe for some of you this morning, the first thing you need to do is just repent. Maybe some of these things that I shared that I talked about are not things in your past, but in your present right now. Let me call you to repentance this morning. Like God's people who were enslaved in Egypt, we should not hesitate to call out to the Lord to be saved and rescued. God is faithful to that. If you're in the midst of sin right now, if you've never trusted in Christ before, would you call out to God to save you, to redeem you, to transform you, believing that Christ died on the cross for you and was raised again from the grave for you? And let me encourage all of us, no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, to jump into the pool of grace and swim in the deep end. Man, what happens when you jump in the pool? I'm not talking about wading into the pool. I'm talking about going in and jumping into the 10-foot area of the pool. We just joined the pool in our neighborhood, and they have a diving board with a big, deep end. There's kids all over the place jumping in. But what does it look like for you when you jump into the deep end of the pool? I mean, cannonball style. Man, you get fully encapsulated by the water. You cannot jump into the water and stay right on the surface. You sink down into the water and are fully encapsulated by it. That's what God's redeeming grace does in your life. There's no aspect of you from head to toe, inside and out, that is not touched by his redeeming grace. There is nothing in your life that's unredeemable. There's nothing in your life that's unredeemable. God can transform and use everything for his glory. The God who comes down to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt is the God who came down as one of his people to bring ultimate rescue from slavery to sin and to death. And so if God has saved you, if God has redeemed you out of your sin, if God has called you out of your darkness, now you can go and invite others to jump into the deep end of his grace. All of us, if we're in Christ, are redeemed to redeem And the same encouragement that God gives to Moses, he gives to you and to me. At the end of Matthew, in chapter 28, Jesus says to you, go and make disciples and I will be with you. It's not about your qualifications. It's not about what you're able to do. It's about who goes with you. The I am goes with you. As one pastor says, the God who saves is the God who sins. Each of us is called to serve the God of the burning bush. Whether we are preachers or postmen, bridge builders or bankers, consultants or cooks, financial planners or pharmacists, lawyers or locksmiths, mechanics or medical doctors, students or stay-at-home moms, God has work for you to do, to make much of him, to tell of his redeeming grace. Look, Moses was not someone special. You are not someone special. God is special. And he gives you his special grace to do his special work, to speak life into dead men and women. You open your mouth and God does the work. That is amazing grace that God would use jacked up people to do such amazing things. No rewind, just redeem. When you and I realize our reality, That apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. We are enslaved to it, shackled to it, sitting in darkness. But the compassionate call of Yahweh has come to us, redeemed us, pulled us out of the pit. We should be overwhelmed with the desire to make much of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
knowing there's people all around us who still sit in darkness, who think that there's no way that God could give them grace. There's no way that God could forgive them because of what they've done. But you can come and say, no, he can, because I'm a, I'm a recipient of that grace. So this morning, let's repent of our reluctance and embrace our calling, redeemed to redeem. Sojourn, I, I want us to be faithful to our calling as called out ones to go and call out more people to the glory of God. There are many people in Fairfax, many people in Northern Virginia who have never heard the true gospel. Maybe they've heard about Christ, they've heard of Jesus, but they've never heard the true gospel of grace. And I want them to hear it from you. I want it to come out of your mouth. I want it to come out of my mouth. I want people in Fairfax and Northern Virginia to hear God's truth of grace, the truth of the gospel from our lips, knowing that our God is with us. Our God is a redeeming God. So knowing that, let's go from this place and be the ministers of reconciliation, be the ambassadors of grace and the agents of redemption God has called us to be and to do it for his glory. As we come to the table now, I think it's important for us this morning to be reminded of our sin, the darkness, the brokenness, the death of our sin. But as you think on that, allow that to lead you to a place of worship and gratitude and thanksgiving as you eat the bread and as you drink the cup, being reminded of God's unfathomable grace, his redeeming grace that's been poured out for you and over you. Christ gave himself up for you, that you might be set free. God saved you for his glory, and now God sends you for his glory. And so as you are refreshed this morning through the bread and through the cup, know that Christ is present. Rest in the redemption you have received, and go with the redemption you've been given to give it to other people. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would ask you not to come forward and take communion this morning. And the reason we say that is because what this signifies is that we have trusted fully and completely in Christ to be reconciled to God. That we understand the depth and depravity of our self, the sin in our life, and that we need Christ to rescue us. And we've placed our faith in him. So if you haven't done that yet, if you've never repented of your sin and fully trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then we want to call you to do that this morning. Don't take communion. Take Christ. Call on the God who redeems today. Would you do that today? There's no better day, no better time to, than now to ask God to save you. Would you do that today? And if you have questions about that, please come talk to me. And we'd, I'd love to pray with you and help you understand what it looks like to know and follow Jesus. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements, tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. And you can take it immediately or when you get back to your seat. Sojourn, there's no rewind, just redeem. Redeemed to redeem. Let's pray. Father God, I am blown away by the fact that you would use someone like me to preach your gospel of grace. And Lord, I don't stand up here as someone who is better than anybody else in this room. Lord, I know the depth of my sin and probably don't even fully understand that, but Lord, I know 
your unfathomable grace, which I don't fully understand either. And so I pray that every person in this room would experience your grace, would know the reality of your grace, maybe for the first time today. But Lord, even if we've walked with you for many years, I pray that we would walk out of this place knowing there's no rewind, just redeem. That you take the worst, most dark things of our life and you can transform those for your good. You used a murderer, a coward, to go and set your people free. Lord, we thank you that you use jacked up people like us to do that work. It, it should blow us away. It is a privilege to do it. And so, Father, I pray that today as we come forward and take communion, we be refreshed in your grace. And as we come forward and take communion and continue to see these song, sing these songs, we would go out from this place knowing that we have jumped into the deep end of the pool. We are encapsulated by your grace and we would share that with other people in this area. And Lord, I pray that for your glory and the good of this city, that you would call many, many people to yourself, that they would hear of your redeeming grace from us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to die for us. And Lord, I pray that we'd celebrate that now. We pray this in his name. Amen.